Good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you to uh, our second night here at the Revelation of Hope Bible Prophecy Seminar. Tonight we have two different presentations, and you're here for the first one, and so you're going to receive a double blessing tonight as we study the wonderful truths from God's Holy Word. Our topic is entitled, Prophecy's Final Countdown. It's another essential, fundamental, foundational presentation that will really help us to understand other prophecies we'll be covering in the next week or so. And so we're glad that you're here. I hope that you're glad that you're here. I know for sure that God is glad that we are all here tonight because we are here yielding our mind over to spiritual things that we might be enlightened with the knowledge the life-saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we welcome you. We thank God for bringing you to this place tonight. Amen. Amen. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we begin with the word of prayer. Thank you so much, Lord, for being such a personal God, a God that knows not only our name, but you know every single detail of our lives, and you care about us. We thank you so much for that. Thank you that your love has drawn us to this place tonight. And Lord, we have come responding to your loving invitation because we want to be blessed and we realize that this is the place where blessings are poured out. And you promised to us in your word that when we study the, prophe the prophecies of the Bible, especially that we will receive a rich blessing. So we come expecting that blessing tonight, asking that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us to a deeper understanding of truth and that you would show us even further evidence that you are a God that can be trusted, a God that knows the future, and a God that we can count on in every situation we face in life. And so, Lord, please speak to our hearts tonight and be with us now as we study. Is our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. Our message tonight is entitled, Prophecies, Final Countdown. And in this presentation, we want to focus on a foundational, fundamental prophecy that, of which all other prophecies, especially in Daniel and Revelation, are actually built upon. A prophecy that outlines the final countdown to eternity. But before we get into that, I just want to review some of the things we already discovered last night. For those who are not here, last night we covered a very essential foundational topic where we talked about seven keys of how to unlock the mysteries of Bible prophecy. And uh, we learned last night that according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, it tells us that we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a what, everyone? A light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So we see that the Bible it claims to be the sure word of prophecy. In a world full of uncertainties and unsureties, God's prophetic word is sure and certain. It gives us confidence as we face the uncertainties of the present as well as the future. But the question is, how can we be so sure that it's sure? In other words, what is the evidence that the Bible is trustworthy and that it is what it claims to be, the truth of God? Well, we read last night in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 9 and 10, where the God of the Bible makes a very bold claim. And it reads in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Please write it down as we review. 
The Bible tells us, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is how much? None else. I am God and there is none like me. Here is a huge claim, friends. The God of the Bible is claiming to be the one true God, and the strong implication in that claim is that every other God or every other religion is a false God or false religion, which would make it a deception. Now, how do we know that this is true? Are we expected to accept this blindly? No, friends. God not only makes a huge claim, but He gives us a way in which we can test to see if that is indeed the truth. And the next verse is the test. The Bible continues and it says, declaring the end from when? The beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. So again, God claims to be the one true God. And the way in which he, we test that claim out is he says, I declare what ha what's going to happen before it happens. The end from the beginning. And friends, I want to share with you that that's prophecy of foretelling of futuristic events. No other book in the world makes such a huge claim as this and then actually gives us a way in which we can test to see if this claim is true. And so, uh, furthermore, something interesting is that there is no scientific law that can explain Bible prophecy. When it comes to prophecy, this remains outside of man's wisdom because it is of divine origin. And again, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42 and verse 9, it says, Before, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. When does he declare it? Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And that is what prophecy is all about, telling us what's going to happen before it happens, thus giving to us verifiable evidence. What kind of evidence? Evidence that we can verify, that we can actually test to see if it is the truth. But friends, let's be quick to remind ourselves that God has revealed the future to us not simply to inform the mind or to satisfy the curiosity, but again, He gives us this evidence because He wants to prove Himself as a God that is trustworthy, a God that can be trusted, a God that can be counted upon in every difficult situation we face in life. And I want to submit to us tonight, friends, that God, that our faith in God is not based on wishful thinking, but upon solid evidence. Evidence more solid than any claim that man makes, nor the theories of false science. But why is it that our world, in a general sense, is so steeped in skepticism concerning God and the Bible? Well, friends, I said it last night. Many people don't believe in God because of their gross ignorance of Bible prophecy. I truly believe that if individuals were to hear the prophecies that we're going to be studying in the next few weeks, that they would be believers overnight. Many in the atheistic evolutionary community scoff so easily in skepticism because most of them have never heard the things that we're going to hear in the next few weeks. And it's unfortunate that many educational institutions who claim academic freedom are taking young people into intellectual bondage with their biases. And many young minds are being molded by a narrow, one-sided worldview. But I believe that if we're to truly have an open mind and honestly examine the evidence that atheism would be would fast become an extinct worldview because it's the most illogical and ignorant worldview in the world today. Because when you look at the worldview of the Bible, the Christian worldview, 
it actually calls upon us to use our mind, to use our intellect, to reason together. And friends, Christianity is a very reasonable and logical worldview. How do we know? Because of prophecy. Fulfilled Bible prophecy verifies the truthfulness of God's Word, and it gives us confidence that the future is in the hands of God. It gives us hope, friends. And so for this cause, tonight we're going to look at a major foundational prophecy that we'll build upon on future nights. But friends, what is the purpose or the primary purpose of prophecy? Let's go now to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and review this one last point. Revelation, chapter 1, and verse 1. What is the primary purpose of prophecy? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us what the book of Revelation is all about. And notice with me the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. And if you're there and if you're ready to study, would you please say amen? amen. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Notice it's not just a revelation from Jesus to man, but it's a revelation of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must what? Shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Notice carefully, friends, in the first, first verse of this end time book, it gives us the primary and the secondary purpose of, of the book. Number one, the primary purpose is to reveal Jesus Christ. Number two, to reveal things which must shortly come to pass. And that's prophecy. But friends, I want you to notice, as we studied last night, that the book of Revelation is built upon the broad foundation of the Old Testament Scriptures. Isn't that right? There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And 274 of those verses, at least, are direct quotations from the Old Testament Scriptures. In other words, the only way we can accurately understand Revelation is if we first get the Old Testament foundational context of this book. Re Revelation is a mosaic of Scripture, 404 verses, over 270 of them quoting from the Old Testament. And as you begin to read Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, and you stumble across this expression, things which must shortly come to pass, this expression is a direct quotation, in fact, the first direct quotation in Revelation to the Old Testament. It's actually quoting from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Because in the book of Daniel, we find foundational prophecies that are essential for us to understand in order for us to make any sense of the book of Revelation. So it's like this, friends. You begin to study Revelation, and all of a sudden you read things which will surely come to pass, and it's pointing us to go back to the book of Daniel to study what exactly were those things which must shortly come to pass. Daniel chapter 2 is where we're going to now. So take your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. This shows that, friends, Daniel and Revelation must be studied together in order to be correctly understood. And as we go back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, that's on page uh, 879 if you're using our seminar Bible, page 879 if you're using the seminar Bible. As we go back to the book of Daniel, we're going to study a prophecy that reveals things which must shortly come to pass, a foundational prophecy that all the other prophecies of Daniel and Revelation are actually built upon. 
And as we study this prophecy, we will discover that God alone knows the future, and we can trust Him with our personal future tonight. So we're going back now, 2,500 years to the past, to study an ancient king's dream, a dream that had deep prophetic significance. We're in Daniel chapter 2, that's page 879 if you're using our seminar Bible, and notice what the Bible says beginning with verse 1. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, and if you're there, would you please let me know by saying amen. amen. The Bible says, Daniel 2 verse 1, and in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Here we find the description of an ancient king, Nebuchadnezzar by name. He is the most powerful monarch ruling the world at that time. And one night he is rudely awakened in his royal bedchamber by the cogitations of his own mind. You see, friends, he had a remarkable nightmare of some sort. And this dream was so vivid that the king was impressed with its importance. And ancient kings back in these times believed that the gods would communicate to mankind through dreams. And so this ancient king, thinking that it was some type of message from the gods, he gathered his cabinet together for counsel. He called the magicians and the astrologers and the soothsayers and the Chaldeans. These were the, were the modern-day intellectuals and experts and specialists, the crystal ball gazers and the palm readers and the magicians of that day. These individuals were trained in the arts of science, mingled with pagan superstitions. And as they approach the king in his royal bedchamber, he demands them to tell him what he himself had forgotten. Now notice how these wise men respond. Verse 4, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. Safe to say that the king had a very short temper, isn't that right? If you don't tell me what I want to know, I'm going to cut you in pieces, this, this king said to his servants. But then notice in verse 6, But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. So here we find the king had two urgent requests. There are two things he wanted to know. Number one, he wanted to know what he dreamt. And number two, he wanted to know what it meant. The dream and the interpretation is what he was demanding of his wise men. And as these wise men hear the request of the king, you can imagine they begin to sweat. This, they, they never received the request like this before. You see, normally the king, whenever he would have a dream, he would tell the dream to his servants, and they would make up some type of interpretation to satisfy his curiosity. But this dream was different, friends. And so now the wise men uh, begin to negotiate in verse 7. They answered again and said, Let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation of it. 
The king answered and said, I know of certainty that you would gain the time because you see the thing is gone from me. But if you not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requires. And there is none that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause the king was very angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And so we find the king realizes that he has a bunch of phonies on the royal payroll. And he is infuriated. He realized that these wise men were not truly wise at all. They simply have been deceiving him the whole time. And now they're being exposed as deceivers and liars. And the king is so mad that he orders for all of these wise men to be executed, completely exterminated. These in whom the king had trusted left him disillusioned and disappointed. And friends, one of the powerful lessons that this story teaches us is in the folly of trusting in the arm of flesh. The king trusted in the wise men, the intellectuals, the specialists, and the experts of the day. And as a result of trusting in man's words, he was disappointed and disillusioned. And friends, that's the same when we trust in the words of man. Man's words are fallible, unstable, and unreliable. I mean, think about it. How many times have we heard politicians making promises that in the end have not been kept? And that's the reason why Jesus warned us over and over again in the Bible, beware of false Christ and false prophets that will show great signs and wonders in so much if it were possible, they shall deceive even the very elect. And that includes politicians, not only politicians, it includes presidents, professors, priests, and even pastors. We can't trust in the words of any man, friends. We can only trust in the words of Almighty God. And the Bible warns us over and over again. The book of Jeremiah 17 tells us, Cursed be the man that trusts in man who makes flesh his arm. You see, in these, in these last days, many people are going to be led astray by the sophistries and the speculations of spiritual leaders. And I said it last night, let me say it again. One of the last persons you should ever trust, friends, is a preacher. One that claims to speak for God because Jesus warned us that there will be wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets in the last days. We can't take a man's word for it, and we can't be accustomed to being spoon-fed by a minister. We must study for ourselves and test everything by a thus saith the Lord, and an it is written, for eternal salvation is too serious to leave into the hands of a minister or a man. Can you say amen? The Bible tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Friends, we can't even trust ourselves. It says, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Think about it, friends. What happens if you're leaning on someone and that person you're leaning on ends up falling? What's going to happen to you? You're going to fall with that person. It's the blind leading the blind. Both shall fall into the ditch, Jesus says. But I'm thankful that when we lean upon the everlasting arms of the Lord, He will never fall. He will never fail. 
he will keep us standing firm to the end. Can you say amen? And that's the reason why, friends, I repeat again in this seminar, as you come night after night, in the Revelation of Hope Bible Prophecy Seminar, we're not concerned with the words of man, nor the teachings of a church, nor the opinions of popular theologians. We want to go straight to the source, and our textbook is the Bible and the Bible alone. And as we go to the source and let the Bible speak for itself, truth is abundantly clear. Amen? One of the most confusing places on earth is a Christian bookstore. You know why? You have this person's take on this verse and this topic. You have another book that says something completely different. This person's take, that person's take. Friends, I believe that if we go to the source, we can truly know what truth is as the Spirit of God leads us into all truth. Amen? And so that's why, friends, I repeat again, don't take my word for it. Write it down, study for yourself, and the Spirit will bless your investigation. And so the king trusted in these wise men. They left him disappointed and disillusioned. They could not come through for the king when he needed them the most. He trusted in the intellectuals and the experts of the day. And why was it that these wise men could not come through for the king? Because this dream the king received was a different dream. It wasn't like the other dreams he received in the past. This dream did not come from eating pizza late at night. This was a divine dream that came from the God of heaven. It was a spiritual dream, and spiritual things are spiritually discerned. These wise men could not give what they themselves did not have. They could not share spiritual things when they themselves were not spiritual. And here's another lesson for, for leaders and teachers and pastors and parents, and the lesson is this. How can you give what you don't have yourself? Parents, how can you expect your children to be spiritual when you yourself are not? You see, one of the best things we can do for others is to have our own experience. And when we have an experience with God, it's then that we have something to talk about. Can you say amen? And so these wise men had nothing to say because they were not in touch with the true God. Therefore, they could not break down spiritual things. But amongst the phonies, there was one who did have a genuine experience. He was a true wise man Perhaps he was underrated because he was a youth. Maybe he had a baby face and people did not take him seriously. He was in his late teens, a Hebrew captive. His name was Daniel, which means God is my judge. And as Daniel, who was amongst the wise men of Babylon, as Daniel hears about the hasty decree of the king, he approaches the king and asks the king for some time so that he might, he might figure out exactly what the king dreamt and what it meant. Now, when Daniel asked for some time, Daniel had no idea what he dreamt or what it meant. He didn't know, but Daniel knew someone that did know. Daniel knew the God of heaven. Can you say amen? And so where did Daniel go to when he was in trouble? When his life was on the line? When his back was against the, the wall? Where did he go to when he needed help? He went to the place that we need to go to when we're in that same situation. He went directly to God in prayer. He didn't call up the pastor. He didn't counsel with his brothers. He went straight to the source. He went first to God in prayer. And as Daniel prays, God answers his prayer. And friends, that's a powerful lesson for us. When we're in a difficult situation, prayer, friends, is the key in the hands of faith that unlocks heaven's storehouse where are treasured for us the boundless resources of wisdom and power and understanding. And let me tell you, friends, prayer is not some vain repetition, this uh, something that we say over and over again. Prayer is simply opening up the heart to God as to a friend. 
It is the means by which we unload our worries and our cares and our burdens to God. And prayer is not so much for God to be informed as if he doesn't know what's going on, but rather prayer is for us to be transformed as we let God take our burdens upon himself. Prayer does not bring God down to us, but it brings us up to him that we might sit with Christ in heavenly places, even as we sojourn here in this world. You see, friends, friendships are built upon trust. Isn't that right? And trust is built based upon communication. And the more we pray, the more we learn to trust God. And the more we trust God, the more God can trust us with His blessings. And so let me tell you, friends, prayer is powerful. More prayer, more power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power at all. God wants to have a relationship with us. And, in, and the, 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 the foundation of every relationship is communication, but it must be two ways. We communicate to God through prayer. He communicates to us through His Word. And as we do this day by day, we learn to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so, my brothers and my sisters, I'm not sure how you came to this place tonight. Maybe you came carrying heavy burdens. Maybe your marriage is being attacked by the enemy. Maybe the love and the respect that once was in your marriage has been stripped away. Or maybe you're going through financial difficulties. You don't know how to pay the bills and how you're going to get out of that massive debt you're in. Maybe you have children that are acting crazy. Maybe you yourself are doing drugs and, and you're addicted to some sinful, foolish pleasure. No matter how difficult the situation, bring those burdens to God in prayer. And He is the great burden lifter. Can you say amen? I've experienced it personally. I showed you this picture of who I used to be last night. This was me about 15 years ago, a druggie, burning up my brain cells, getting high every single day, chasing the world. And no matter how much I tried to stop doing these things on my own, I had no power. I was addicted. I was a slave to stimulation. But it wasn't until someone invited me to a Bible prophecy seminar, a seminar just like this. I came to those meetings. I heard about the Lord Jesus. The power of God in His Word was so profound, and it didn't take a week, not even a few days, but instantly when I prayed to God, I said, Lord, would you please make me free from these addictions? Take it away from me, dear God. I don't have the power. I need you to remove it from my life. I need you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And when I loosen my grip from these demonic drugs, and I prayed to God, He took it from me, friends. He set me free. It came through the power of prayer. And not only did he make me free, but he began to restore those burnt brain cells. And now I'm here before you tonight, testifying to the reality that God is real and he is a God that answers our prayers. Can you say amen? He is the miracle-working God. Prayer is what changed my life forever, and it'll do, it will do the same for you. So Daniel prays to God when he was in trouble. Then after he prays, he does something interesting. Daniel does not stay up all night worrying about it. He simply goes to sleep. He brings his burden to the Lord, and he leaves it there. You know, many times we pray, we bring our burden to the Lord, and then we stay up all night worrying about it. Don't do that, friends. Bring your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Daniel goes to sleep, and it's interesting that while he's sleeping, God is answering his prayer. It's when we're resting and trusting in God that God can actually work out your situation, friends. But if you're constantly fretting and complaining and worrying about it, what can he do? You're not demonstrating trust and faith. 
Daniel prays, he goes to sleep. While he's sleeping, God answers his prayer by giving him the same dream that he gave to the king the night before. And so when Daniel woke up the next morning, he was able to approach that earthly king with confidence. He could stand before an earthly king. Why? Because he first knelt low before the king of kings. You can stand up strong before any man as long as you kneel down low before the Lord, friends. The Bible said it's, it says if God is for us, who can be against us? So Daniel comes and notice what happens. He approaches the king, and in verse 26, the king asks Daniel if he's able to do what the wise men could not do. Notice what it says, Daniel 2, verse 26. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men and the astrologers and the magicians and the soothsayers show unto the king? Here Daniel is reminding the king of how foolish it was to trust in the wise men, the intellectuals, the experts of the day. He's basically making a contrast. Well, couldn't the wise men, I mean, that's what you pay them for. Couldn't they do it? And the king has to acknowledge, at least in his mind, that it was a foolish thing to trust in those phonies. But then the contrast comes in verse 28. Daniel says, but there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the what? In the latter or the last days. Thy dream and thy visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. Verse 29, as for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. Notice the expression now. What should come to pass hereafter? Does that sound familiar to you? That's the expression we find in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. That expression, Revelation 1 verse 1, things which will surely come to pass, is actually quoting right here in Daniel 2 verse 29. In other words, what we're going to discover in this chapter is basically the foundation of all the other prophecies in Daniel and Revelation. So it says the reason for this dream is to reveal what should come to pass hereafter. And he that reveals secrets makes known unto thee what shall come to pass? Verse 30, but as for me, the secret which, uh, excuse me, as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes, that, that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. So notice, beautiful, Daniel is quick to give God all the glory. He makes it clear, king, it's not because I'm special or I'm, I'm wise but rather God is the one that reveals secrets. He has an opportunity to promote himself, but instead of promoting himself, he glorifies the God that answered his dream. Can you say amen? And so through this dream, God is seeking to place upon the heart of the king as well upon the hearts of us today the conviction that he alone is the true God that knows the future and that he is the reader of our hearts. Enough of the preliminaries now. What did the king dream? Let's read it now. Verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, Daniel says, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible or awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, 
his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone, a what? <clears throat> a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet. Upon his where? His feet were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I can imagine this earthly monarch as he hears Daniel recounting to him the dream. He starts to get excited. It's all coming back to him. I, I can imagine him scooting at the edge of his throne and saying, yes, yes, that's what I saw. Uh, th that's what I saw. It's all coming back to me now. What exactly did he see? He saw an image of a man. It was made of different metals. The image, the head upon this image was made of pure solid gold. His chest and his arms, that of silver. Belly and thighs, brass. The long legs were made of iron, and then the feet with the ten toes, partially of iron and partially of clay. Then in the dream, the king saw a stone that was cut out without hands, which means it wasn't of human devising. And that stone hit the image at the feet, at the very foundation, and it blew the image into smithereens, totally destroying the, the, the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, and the iron and clay. And then that stone that destroyed the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. Wow, what a remarkable dream. No wonder why the king was so anxious to know not only what he dreamt, but also what it meant. And I'm thankful that God does not do things halfway. Can you say amen? God not only showed him his dream, now he's going to show it, him what it means. And so notice in verse 38, you can read the whole thing when you get home, but Daniel says to the king, King, thou art this head of gold. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon is represented in this dream as the head of gold. In other words, this strange metal man would represent different kings and kingdoms that would reign from Daniel's day all the way to the last day. There are four specific metals in this image that represents four different kingdoms that was to reign. Babylon would represent, would be represented as the head of gold. In fact, if you read in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 4, Isaiah 14 and verse 4, Babylon is actually called the Golden City. It was known for its gold. It was a very wealthy city indeed. But only the head was of gold. After that, there was silver, then bronze, then iron. And so after Babylon, there would be future kingdoms to come symbolized by different metals in the kingdom. To sum it up, friends, this strange metal man is simply a divine timeline. Simply a what? a divine timeline. It's basically a forecast of empires that would dominate the world from Daniel's day to ours. Four medals representing four empires. And as we go through these tonight, we'll find that history and archaeology verifies the accuracy of God's prophetic word. Now, I want you to notice in this image, which is the most valuable medal on the image? The head of gold, of course. And then what is the second most valuable? 
the silver, then bronze, then iron. Notice, friends, as you come down through time, the value of the metals decreases, which shows that as, as we get closer to the end of the world, things are not going to progressively get better, but they're going to get worse and worse and worse, weaker and weaker and weaker. That's the reality of what we're, what we're experiencing in our world today. And so let's go through these four empires together and see what history and archaeology has to say about Bible prophecy. Now, the first kingdom was Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, symbolized by the head of goat. Now, the ancient ruins of Babylon are located 60 miles south of Baghdad in modern-day Iraq. In fact, it, it was been told that Saddam Hussein actually tried to restore the ancient ruins of Babylon. He claimed to believe that he was King Nebuchadnezzar reincarnated, but he was dead wrong. Isn't that right? Babylon, friends, nonetheless, ancient Babylon was a powerful and impregnable kingdom. Its walls were 60 miles around and 160 feet high, and the walls of Babylon were thick enough that some historians have said that up to four chariots of horses could race on the top of the walls of Babylon without falling off of those walls. Not only that, but the mighty river Euphrates. What river? Re keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that on a later night. The mighty river Euphrates ran diagonally through the city of Babylon providing water for the crops of the Babylonians to the extent that they had a 20-year food supply. They had enough resources to outweigh any besiegement from an enemy army. And if the river Euphrates ever flooded, thus endangering the city, the Babylonians had these massive gates that would block off the excess water of the river Euphrates. And the gates had bars that would go all the way down to the riverbed. It would divert the excess water around the walls of Babylon, creating a moat of protection. It was a mighty, impregnable, and fortified city indeed. And no wonder why King Nebuchadnezzar thought that his kingdom would last forever. In fact, I was just in, in England last year, and I went to the British Museum where they actually have some of the ancient bricks of the ancient ruins of Babylon. And on those bricks are stamped, thy kingdom shall last forever. Nebuchadnezzar believed that his kingdom was going to be the eternal, everlasting kingdom. And you can understand a little bit why he thought that, because of the mighty walls and the resources of Babylon. But this fortified kingdom came to an end, friends. History tells us that it ruled from 605 to 539 B.C. Well, how is it possible for this powerful kingdom with all of its resources and walls to cease? Well, prophecy tells us that another kingdom would rise to power. This kingdom symbolized by the chest and arms of silver. Notice verse 39. It says, but after thee. Now, you have to understand that King Nebuchadnezzar must have felt flattered when Daniel said to him, King, you're the head of gold. Oh, I can imagine the king was ready to promote Daniel when he heard those words. Really, me, the head of gold? No, really? Of course. Now, Daniel could have stopped right there. But you see, Daniel, even though this next part was not popular to the king, Daniel had to give the message despite an unpopular response. He had to give the message exactly as God had given it to him. In other words, Daniel could not water it down. He could not cut corners. He had to give the whole message. And that's exactly what we want to do in the Revelation of Hope Bible Prophecy Seminar. Can you say amen? We want to give the whole complete message 
as God has given it to us in his word. And so Daniel, he continues, and he must explain this next part, even though he knew the king would not want to hear it. He says, but after thee shall arise another kingdom. And then to add insult to injury, he says, a kingdom, what kind of kingdom? Inferior to thee. Now, how is it possible for an inferior kingdom to overcome a superior kingdom? Just as silver is an inferior metal to gold, so to this second kingdom would be a weaker kingdom to that of Babylon. Well, how in the world could this happen? Well, friends, you can read all about it in Daniel chapter 5. I invite you to write that down and read the whole thing when you get home tonight. In Daniel the fifth chapter, we read about the fall of the golden kingdom of Babylon. And what's happening in this chapter is this. King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, who is the reigning king of Babylon at that time, is partying within the walls of Babylon. The Bible tells us that he threw a feast for a thousand of his lords, and he has his wives and his concubines on the side, and they're drinking the best wine, and they're dancing to the finest music, and they're captivated by the most exciting entertainment, and everyone who is anyone was present at the party. The king is there in his royal robes. He is the host of the party, the life of the party, and all seems to be well. Babylon celebrates in a time of a major crisis. All seems to be well on the inside of the walls. But then the king, in the midst of this drunken stupor, makes a fatal mistake. He tells his servants, bring me the golden cups, the golden cups that his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar took from the sacred temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Those cups that were used in the Lord's service. He said, bring me those cups so that he could drink his old wine of Babylon in those sacred cups. Here we find the king mixing the sacred and the profane together. He's mixing that which is holy with that which is unholy. And whenever he mixed the sacred and profane together, that was like the last straw that broke the camel's back. For that sacrilegious act brought the judgments of God upon Babylon on that very night. He's mixing the sacred and the profane drinking old wine in the sacred golden cups. We're going to come back to that on a later night because, friends, let me tell you, Revelation talks about an end-time system called Babylon that does the exact same thing, that passes around a golden cup full of old intoxicating wine that causes the whole world to become deceived and spiritually intoxicated. You see, friends, this story is a foundation in order to understand Revelation. and We'll deal with that on a later night. But when the king did that, all of a sudden a bloodless hand came out of nowhere and began to write with letters of fire upon the cedar walls of Babylon a message of doom, a message of judgment coming from God himself. Now when the king read the writing on the wall in letters of fire, he was so fearful and afraid he could not read it. He did not understand what it meant. He was terrified. He was so afraid that the Bible tells us that his 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 knees began to shake and his loins were loosed. Do you know what that means? His loins were loosed. He wet his pants like a little baby. Wet his nice royal robe. Here the king is the, as the life of the party thinking he was all that. But God has a way of humbling those who are uplifted in pride and self-exaltation. Isn't that right? 
And so he, he sees the writing, but he can't understand it because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so what he does is he makes a promise, whoever can interpret the writing, I will make that person the third ruler in Babylon. The what number ruler? Now, why not the second ruler? Why the third? The reason why is because Belshazzar himself was only the second ruler in Babylon. It was actually his father, Nabonidus, that was the ruler of Babylon, and, and they ruled Babylon together. Father and son ruled together. And so he, he promised, whoever can interpret this writing, I will make you the third ruler in Babylon. Now, friends, it's interesting. As I mentioned, Belshazzar was the second, whereas his father, Nabonidus, was the first. But here's the interesting thing. History and archaeology makes clear references to Nabonidus as the king of Babylon, whereas the Bible gives no reference to Nabonidus as the king of Babylon. And for many centuries, there was no archaeological evidence for the existence of Belshazzar. The only mention of Belshazzar was in the Bible. And, and, and this seeming discrepancy caused many people to look upon the book of Daniel as inaccurate and fictitious. And they said, archaeology and history makes reference to Nabonidus. The Bible doesn't. The Bible makes reference to Belshazzar, but yet there's no evidence in archaeology or history for that. Therefore, Daniel must be a fairy tale. And many people believe that for many centuries. Until 1854, the rocks began to cry out. Let me tell you what happened. In 1854, a British archaeologist by the name of J.G. Taylor found the famous cylinder of Nabonidus, an ancient cylinder dating back to 556 to about 539 B.C. And in ancient cuneiform texts, it references Belshazzar as the son of Nabonidus, showing that, 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 that the book of Daniel actually preserved history that was lost for many centuries. Here's what the, and I took this picture, I saw it with mine own eyes last year when I was in the British Museum. The cylinder of Nabonidus, you can see it for yourself. In cuneiform text, it reads, as for me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, and as for who? Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring. And this discovery of this rock confirmed that the book of Daniel had to be written around 605 to 530 B.C. And as a result of this discovery, the skeptics were silenced. The rocks in archaeology was crying out that God's Word is the truth. Can you say amen? Now back to the story. Daniel was finally called in to read the writing. And here's the writing upon the wall. Daniel 5, 26 to 28. Mene, which means God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez, thy kingdom is divided and given to who? The Medes and the Persians. On that very night, the golden kingdom ceased and the Medo-Persian empire took to power. That was symbolized by the chest and arms of silver. What happened was this, friends. As the Babylonians were parting on the inside of the walls, Cyrus and the armies of the Medes and Persians were on the outside of the walls trying to find out a way to penetrate the kingdom of Babylon. They're looking away for a way to, to, to get through the massive fortifications, but a breach in the wall was impossible. Thus Cyrus came up with a different strategy. 
And here's what happened. Cyrus ended up marching his army one mile up the river Euphrates, and he ordered his soldiers to begin to dig trenches to divert the water of Euphrates into open fields, causing the water level to drop significantly. Why? So that he could march his army through the riverbed into the city of Babylon. And that's exactly what took place. But here's the problem. What about those massive Babylonian gates whose bars went all the way down to the riverbed? How would he get past the gates? Well, friends, about 150 years before this night took place, prophecy predicted how it would happen. Notice now in the book of Isaiah chapter 44, 27 and 28. Please write it down. The Bible says in Isaiah 44, 27 and 28, that saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up what? Thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure. And then going to chapter 45 and verse 1, it says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings and open before him the two leave gates, and the gates, what? The gates shall not be shut. So notice, friends, it's interesting. God said that the way in which Babylon is going to fall is that the rivers are going to dry up and that the gates, whose bars would go all the way down to the riverbed, that those gates would not be shut. And not only did God tell us how Babylon would be overcome, but he even told us who would be the leader that would take, that would, that would take the lead, and his name was Cyrus. And friends, what's powerful about this is that this prophecy written by Isaiah was penned about 150 years before Cyrus was even born. That shows, friends, that God, he knows our name. Can you say amen? Just like the song that Hope sang tonight, we have a father, he knows our name, he knows our hearts. He knows every single thing about us. You see, my brothers and sisters, your life is not an accident. You were created with a divine purpose, and the same God that had a plan for Cyrus's life has a plan for your life as well. Your life counts. Your life does matter. There is purpose for you. God knows you. He sees you tonight. He knows your name, and not only does he know your name, he's got your number. He knows where you live and where you work and where you go to school. He knows every detail of your life. He knows the secret things that have taken place in the dark. He knows the pain. He knows the struggles. He knows everything about us. And friends, one of the most beautiful things about God is that he is the one that knows us the very best and at the same time loves us the very most. Amen? He knows we are fully known. At the same time, we are fully loved by God. He sees the deepest, darkest secrets of his life, but those things don't change his love for us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He knows your name, friends. Don't ever forget that reality. Can you say Amen. And so God said, Cyrus is the one that's going to do it. It was written 150 years before he was even born. And not only that, Cyrus did it, and he did it by drying up the rivers and entering through the gates. And on that night, he found that those Babylonian gates were not shut. They were open, and thus the Medes and Persians penetrated Babylon, and thus Babylon failed that night, and now the chest and arms of silver came to power. The cylinder of Cyrus... Uh, accounts everything we just explained tonight. The Cyrus Cylinder in the British Museum re records the Persian attack on the kingdom of Babylon. I saw it with my own eyes. The Cyrus Cylinder, I took a picture, or my wife took a picture of me looking at it. It says, 
I am Cyrus, king of the world, great king, legitimate king, king of Babylon, of Sumer, of Akkad, king of the four corners of the earth. He thought very highly of himself, as you can see. But So we find history, archaeology, testifies to the accuracy of the word of God. And it also tells us that the chest and arms of silver, the Median Persian Empire, ruled from 539 to 331 B.C. Friends, can we trust in the Word of God? Absolutely, yes. Now we got to go quick. We're running out of time. But notice, after the Medes and Persians was a third kingdom, this time made of brass. It says in verse 39, And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all of the earth. The kingdom that followed the Medes and Persians was none other than the Grecian Empire under the rulership of Alexander the Great. And it's interesting that the Greeks were known for using bronze weapons and bronze shields and, and bronze armor. They were very, very fast. In fact, Alexander the Great began to conquer different territories of that vast empire when he was 16 years old. And he succeeded in conquering every territory, every kingdom, by the time he was 30 years old. You see, the Greeks were fast and fierce fighters. Under the short span of 14 years, he conquered the whole world. But even though he had the whole world in his hands, Alexander the Great could not conquer his greatest enemy of all, and that was himself. History tells us that after conquering the world and every army of the world, just two years after, he died in a drunken stupor. He could not conquer his own addictions, his own demons, his own bad habits, which testifies to us tonight that our greatest enemy is the one we look at every single day in the mirror. Self, friends, is our greatest enemy. And thus the greatest victory that we can ever gain in this world is victory over self. Amen? The life of Alexander the Great reminds me of the words of Jesus. What shall it profit a man? if he gains the whole world and loses his soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? He had the whole world, but in the end, he had nothing, friends. He lost his soul. As far as we know, he went to a, a godless and a Christless grave. Friends, you may have everything in this world, all the glitter and glamour, all the accoutrements and the luxuries, but if you don't have Christ, what do you really have? You have nothing. But the flip side is also true. You may have nothing in this world, but if you got Jesus, you got all of eternity. Amen? History tells us that the Grecian Empire ruled from 331 to 168 B.C. After that, there was a fourth middle, the long legs of iron, a fourth kingdom that would break in pieces and subdue all things. And history tells us that after Greece was none other than the iron monarchy of Rome. And the Romans were actually known for using iron weapons and iron shields and iron armor that gave them the advantage over the weaker bronze weapons of Greece. Rome was the fourth kingdom that would reign after the kingdom of the Grecian Empire. In fact, history actually tells the story by using Bible imagery. Edward Gibbons, in his masterpiece, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbons, he wasn't a Christian, he was a pagan. And as he recounts the story of history, he borrows Bible imagery to explain it. Notice what he says. The images of gold, of silver, or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the what? By the iron monarchy of Rome. Rome was the fourth kingdom. And of the four, Rome ruled the longest, from 168 B.C. to 476 A.D. Now, what would happen next in the prophecy? 
Would there be a fifth kingdom that would reign after Rome? No, friends. The Bible tells us that there would be, after the long days of iron, that Rome would be divided into different kingdoms. This is symbolized by the feet and toes part of iron and clay. Notice now verse 41. And whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be what? Not conquered, but it shall be divided. And history testifies that that's exactly what happened. Barbarian tribes came from the north and began to conquer different territories of the vast Roman Empire. It wasn't conquered by one empire, but, but, but it was divided into, into ten specifically. Just there are, as there are ten toes on the feet, Rome was divided into ten different kingdoms. They are as follows on the screen. The ten kingdoms of Rome. The Alamanni were the modern Germans. The Burgundians were the Swiss. The Franks were the French. The Lombards were the Italians. The Anglo-Saxons were the English. Suevi were the Portuguese. And the Visigoths were the Spanish. And then you have the Heruli, Vandals, and Ostrogoths, nations that are extinct today. We're going to find out why they no longer exist on a future night. But these are the kingdoms that make up modern-day Europe. And just as God's Word said, Europe is divided even till this day. It was divided. And just as iron and clay don't mix, it would remain divided to the end of time. And so we review now. We find this strange metal man, four different metals, representing four different kingdoms. The first one is Babylon. Chest and arms of silver represents Medo-Persia. Belly and thighs of brass is Greece. Long legs of iron is Rome. And then the feet with the ten toes, part of iron and clay, represents divided Rome or divided Europe. Now, the Bible gets even more specific, and it tells us what man would try to do to the different kingdoms of Europe. In verse 43, And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the what? The seed or the offspring of men. In other words, the Bible is prophesying that the, that the, that the ten toes divided Europe would try to mingle and come together in unity by mingling their seed, that is, through intermarriage. And history tells us that that's exactly what man tried to do. Uh, it was um, Napoleon who divorced his wife Josephine in order that he might marry Luisa of Austria in an attempt to unite the divided countries of Europe. Queen Victoria, whose reign was over 60 years in England, in, attempt to, in an attempt to unite the divided countries of Europe, she married off over 40 of her children and grandchildren into almost every royal family in Europe, thinking that if they were all related, that they would stop fighting and get along and become one. But friends, these things did not happen. Why? Because the rest of that same verse says, but they shall not cleave one to another even as iron is not mixed with miry clay. Just as clay and iron don't mix, prophecy says that the divided kingdoms of Europe would not come together in a one-world government. But despite the clear words of prophecy, man tried to prove God's word a lie. And another way they sought to unite Europe was through military conflict and war. And we find many uh, generals in the past, dictators with their mighty armies and massive artilleries, they all fought to shape the destiny of the world, seeking for absolute control over the affairs of kingdom, but all have fallen, whereas God's word stands true to today. That shows, friends, that history is not a series of random events. History is not dictated by a dictator. There's only one that gets the final word over the nations. And that is the King of kings and Lord of lords, God himself. In Daniel 4, verse 17, it says, 
The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The Bible says that God sets up kings and he takes down kings. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And, it's, and, and it's, no, it's no question, friends, that he has the whole world in his hands. Amen? But the question tonight is, does he have you in his hands? He's got the whole world in his hands. But have you put your life in the hands of this king? Now we come down to the final part of the vision. Where are we in the stream of prophetic time? We're not in the head of gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron. We're all the way at the end, friends. We're at the toes. So close that one person said that we are in the tips of the toenails. We're living at the very end of time. And notice what's going to happen at the end. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings, in the days of what? What kings are those referring to? Divided Europe. Is Europe divided today, yes or no? So when it says in the days of these kings, we can barely say, today, what's going to happen? Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people? Well, what's going to happen? But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand, how long? Forever. Well, friends, what kingdom is that that is to come? It's symbolized by the solid rock cut out without hands. It wasn't of human devising, friends. And that solid rock, it hit the image on the feet. It blew that image to pieces. It became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Well, friends, which kingdom is this rock-solid kingdom? Who's the rock, friends? The rock is not some wrestler on WWE. Jesus is the rock. Can you say amen? He is the rock of our salvation. And so the rock represents the kingdom of Christ, the solid rock kingdom. In other words, God is setting up a kingdom that it's never going to be destroyed, but it shall destroy all the kingdoms of the world. And that solid rock everlasting kingdom is going to reign forever. And Jesus will sit upon the throne as the king of kings and lord of lords. In Revelation 11 and verse 15, it tells us that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign, how long? Forever and ever and ever. Friends, don't you see, friends, the first part of the, of the vision came to pass to a T. History and archaeology confirms it. And if the first part came to pass, what about the second part? What about that rock cut out with hands? You think that's going to come to pass? Absolutely yes, friends. We're living in a time when God is setting up an eternal, everlasting kingdom. And today, he's looking for citizens, individuals who would like to be citizens of that solid rock kingdom. And I want to be a citizen of that kingdom. How about you? Now the prophecy closes, and Daniel closes with a solid rock declaration. He says to the king, the dream is certain. The interpretation is, you see, friends, in this world of uncertainties, in this world of unsureties, there is something that we can be absolutely certain and sure about, and that is the sure word of prophecy. God knows the truth. God tells the truth. God knows the future, and tonight we can trust Him with our future. And so my last question, second to the last question, what secures our citizenship in the, into the solid rock kingdom? Well, friends, let me first ask, how many of you want to be a part of that kingdom? Amen? 
I don't want to be a part of an earthly kingdom that's going to pass away. I want to be a part of that everlasting kingdom that's never going to pass away. And friends, the only way we can be a part of that kingdom, the only way we can be in the kingdom is we first must know the king of the kingdom. And it's unfortunate. Many people want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. But friends, let me tell you, you can't have one without the other. You cannot have the kingdom while rejecting and ignoring the king at the same time. The only way we're going to enter into the kingdom is if we know the king. Do you know the king tonight? Oh, let me tell you about the king. What kind of king is he? He's a king of kindness. Even though we have rebelled against his government, even though we have sinned against his laws, He's a king of kindness. Let me tell you about him as we close tonight. About 2,000 years ago, there were three men hanging on crosses. Two of them were thieves, but one of them was a king. And they always put the worst criminal in the middle. And as these three men were dying on these cruel crosses, one of those thieves on one side cursed the man in the middle and called for a cheap salvation. He said to the one in the middle, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and save us. That thief was stubbornly persistent in blaspheming God with his last breaths. But then there was another thief on the opposite side. He began to realize just how foolish he had been living a life of sin. This thief is filled with remorse as he reflects upon the mistakes of his life. And as that thief looked at the man in the mirror himself, as he began to take inventory of his own life, what an ugly sight he beheld. He realized, I deserve this death that I am dying who could ever love me after all I have done? In this moment, he feels so far away from God. His guilt and his shame is unbearable, too heavy for him to handle. He's being crushed by condemnation. He is being drowned in despair. He feels absolutely helpless and hopeless and friendless and comfortless until he took his eyes off of the man in the mirror and he placed his eyes on the man in the middle. And when he looked into the face of Jesus, he saw something that he'd never seen before in his whole life. As he looked into the face of Christ, he saw a peace that was foreign to himself. He saw a love that was so strange. He saw purity and innocence. And this thief was convicted that this man in the middle does not belong there. He does not belong on that cross. He's out of place. He should not be numbered with the transgressors. How could he still love those who hate him? How could he pray for the forgiveness of his persecutors? Because that thief heard the man in the middle say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
And as he looked into the face of Jesus, there was no fear in his face. There was no trace of anger or condemnation. He, all he saw was love. A love that was stronger than death. A love that was stronger than sin. And this thief was moved with conviction that this man in the middle was definitely not a criminal. And he seemed like more than a mere man. He looked more like a royal king. A king hanging on a cross. And the conviction was confirmed when that thief looked up and he read the sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. And then he saw the crown of thorns and he heard the mocking throng say, If you are the Son of God, save yourself, then we will believe. And that thief began to realize that this man in the middle is more than a man. He's more than a king. He is the Lord, the one that all the prophecies were pointing to. And at the cross, friends, the purity of his presence permeated the filth of the atmosphere just like a crushed flower whose fragrance fills the air was the love for this king for a world that hated him and nailed him to the cross. This selfless love was so forward, the thief couldn't understand it. And he compared that love with the selfishness of his own sinful life and the contrast between himself and Christ was so dramatic and distinct. He realized, I'm guilty, but he's innocent. That thief realized Jesus is dying. Even though he didn't do anything wrong, he's dying for me. The innocent is taking my place. And as a result, faith sprung up in his heart for the first time in a long time. He began to think, perhaps there's hope for a vile thief like me. I have nothing to lose, but I have eternity to gain. And if this king could forgive his murderers, maybe he can forgive me too. And so he called upon Jesus with his last breaths and he prayed Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom oh would you remember me what did that thief realize he realized what we need to realize tonight that the innocent was dying so that the guilty could live and it wasn't just a man that was dying. It was a king. He recognized a king on the cross. But not an earthly king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. In that dying moment, the thief accepted Jesus as his king and as his Lord. And this king of kindness used his last moments to save this wretched thief, giving him the assurance of paradise with him and that's the assurance he offers to us tonight when you feel so far away from God like the thief that's when God is closest to you don't ever forget friends that you are worth the life of the king of kings you are the most expensive thing in the universe Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords shed his blood for you. Don't ever doubt the love of God for you. You may have sinned much. You may have made mistakes and messed up big time. But the King has died for you. You're worth the life 
of the king. And the question tonight is this. Jesus asks, will you accept me as your king? Will you allow me to sit upon the throne of your heart? Will you let me in? Will you let me be king and Lord over your life? We can't have the kingdom if we don't have the king. How many of you want the king tonight? You want to you say, Lord, I want you to sit upon the throne of my life. I want you to be master and Lord and ruler. I want you to take control of my life. I want the assurance that I'll be in your kingdom when it comes the second time. Is that your prayer? If so, I invite you to pray with me as we close. Thank you so much, Lord, for your amazing love, your amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord, that we once were lost, but through you we are found. Was blind, but through you we can see. Tonight we see more clearly the great sacrifice you have made for us and that you have a kingdom prepared for your people. Lord, we want to be a part of that kingdom. We've seen in your word that you're a God that can be trusted, a God that knows the future. Lord, please teach us to trust you with our future. Would you please come into our hearts tonight, take the throne of our lives, make us ready for your kingdom. This is our prayer. Bless the food we're going to eat now. May give us strength and nourishment and prepare us for the next presentation at 7 o'clock. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. Amen.